Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hello and welcome to a brand new Arsblog Arscast right here on Arsblog.com. How are you? Hope you're well. We're back in the room, back from holidays, and thank you very much again to James for holding the fort last week to give you guys a podcast ahead of our scintillating 2-1 win over Newcastle in the Premier League. Great to get back to winning ways after the interlull. And then what a week we've had since on the pitch and off the pitch. Our Europa League campaign has started... That was just a little pause to help you all catch your breath because I know how exhilarating and exciting the Europa League has been. But off the pitch as well, there's been a lot going on. Ivan Gazidis, the chief executive officer, all the rumors about AC Milan. Well, they were true. He is leaving the club at the end of October to take over at AC Milan in December. We might touch on this in a little bit more detail later on in the show, but that's the big news from behind the scenes After putting in place all these structures, you know, uh, director of football, head of recruitment, contract guy, uh, changing up the medical side of things. And, of course, with a brand new head coach slash manager after Arsene Wenger's departure. And many people thought that Arsene Wenger's presence at the club and his power at the club was an impediment to Ivan Gazidis to be able to operate and do the job the way he wanted to do the job. And now now that Wenger's gone, he's also going. Which is kind of a bit strange. Look, I know the, the, the offer from Milan is very attractive financially. He gets some equity. If they sell it on in a few years' time, he could make millions and millions uh, from his uh, stake in the club. So you can see why it's an attractive proposition. Nevertheless, it does, it does feel a bit strange. You know, a guy takes a new job. It's not a big story, but the timing of it and the fact that it was there for him to take the club forward... Maybe he feels he's taken it as far as he can. Maybe he doesn't feel confident in the decisions he's made. Who knows? But anyway, he is going, and Raul Sanyehi is going to be our new head of football. Head of football relations was his previous title. He's now just head of football. You know, he's dealt with all the relations, the the, the crotchety aunts and the grumpy uncles and the, the annoying little cousins. He's done it all, so he's just ahead of football. And, of course, uh, there's a managing director in place now who is called uh, Vinay Venkatesham. I hope I'm pronouncing that right. He is our current chief commercial officer, and he will become the managing director. Raul Sanyehi and Vinay Venkatesham. I think we'll just call them Raul and Vinny. 
I think that might be the easy way to do it. This is going to be the new executive structure of Arsenal Football Club. And I'm told very reliably that there will be other changes at board level. Perhaps some of the people who have been there for for many, many years will be moving on in the uh, in the fairly near future. And we know uh, that Josh Kroenke is going to take a much more active role. Now, whether that role is made official with a title, I'm not 100% sure yet. The role of CEO is up for grabs, despite the fact that the the job of CEO has been given to the to Raul and Vinny. Uh, it wouldn't be a surprise to appoint a, a CEO at some stage, whether that's Josh or whether he gets a more ceremonial title, for example, chairman. We'll, we'll have to wait and see, but I do know that Josh Kroenke is going to be more hands-on at Arsenal as Stan and KSE put in place the final part of their share purchases, which will give them 100% control. And it would not be a surprise if, when you look at the board now, and you look at the board in 12 months' time, it is quite, quite different. There may well be a, a more American flavor to it. Would it be a surprise if KSE appointed their own people to to various positions? No, it wouldn't. It would be great to see KSE appoint some Arsenal people to the board. That's a different question. We might touch on that in, in a little while in the show as well when we talk to our guest. But it is a fairly big story at board level, and at least it gives us some clarity, this will-he-won't-he thing over Gazidis, whether anybody was really that bothered, whether he would or wouldn't, is another question. It's not that helpful when there are these rumors over your CEO. So at least that's that's clear, and we can, uh, we can move forward and concentrate on matters football, which of course took place this week in the Europa League. A 4-2 win over FC Volska, Volska in, the, uh, in the Europa League. It's um, it's an odd old tournament, isn't it? It's very hard to get excited about it, and you know you could see that in the uh, in the attendance at the Emirates. I could see it on the website even in terms of the uh, the amount of feedback on the posts, match reports, comments on player ratings, all that kind of stuff. People just find it hard to get enthused about the group stages of this particular competition, at least. And by the way, if you didn't see uh, the results, there were a few surprises. So let's go get the classified results. Here are tonight's Europa League classified results. Group A, Arsenal 4, FC Volska 2. Sporting Lisbon 2, FK Carabag 0. Group B, AC Milan 1, F91 27 16 4A 2.3 0. Group C, Spartak Moscow nil, FC four, Celtic five, six, Group D two, two, one. Three, and finally, Group E. Seven, two, and three, Rangers, one. So, uh, some pretty interesting results in there. I hope as the competition goes on, we don't have to face... You know, because since they appointed their new manager, 
They've been playing some uh, pretty amazing football. I'm not sure defensively we could cope with them, to be perfectly honest. But look, that's all ahead of us. We've got the group stages to come. And, and to be fair, the group stages are, you know, they're, they're not that exciting. But once you get beyond that, and once the opposition starts getting a bit more interesting, and once you start getting towards a final... Well, people get a bit more interested, which is uh, normal and natural and human nature. But hopefully, we'll be back into the uh, into the Champions League next season, one way or the other, whether it's via the Europa League or the top four. Who can say? We will find out in due course. Right. Let's move on and let's talk to our guests this week. I'm delighted to welcome back to the show, as always, Amy Lawrence. Good morning, Amy. Good morning, Andrew. This is the first time that we've spoken to you this season and the first time really that we've spoken on the podcast since Unai Emery has become manager and uh, a lot of the summer stuff and boardroom stuff has gone on. So we'll touch on that in a little while. But I just want to start by talking about last night's win in the Europa League over FC Vorskla. I didn't do that on purpose. I actually just couldn't say it. Um, what did you make of the game? What did you make of the game? Four nil up with twenty minutes to go, and you're thinking, "Hey, we could get a clean sheet here." But clean sheets don't seem to be our thing right at this moment in time. No, and by the way, just on the subject of of saying Vorskla, uh, I have to. I, I I had a mental block about even writing it. Every time I wrote it, I had to keep kind of consult the the team sheet. I was getting my Tongue twisting, finger wrapping. Sure. It. it was anyway the joys of the Europa League, um, which <laughs> I do. I'm a bit of a convert to, I must say. Really. And I mean, I'm interested because, well, I, I really enjoyed the the run last year. I think it was good for the team and good for the club. Uh, after a lot of years of having that sort of glass ceiling in the Champions League mm. where you could sense that everybody was pleased to be in it, but nobody had any expectations that they were going to do anything other than what they pretty much always did, which was get out of the group and then get lumped by somebody decent. Yeah. Um, so I found it quite refreshing to have a bit less pressure in Europe um, and just be able to... Go Arsenal to go and experiment a bit with some different players, go to some different places, and it felt a bit more of a relaxed, old-fashioned European experience. Even though, obviously, from the status and financial viewpoint, there's only one place they want to be. Mm. But they, they, people sneer at the Europa League, and I and I think that that's uh, a bit mistaken because certainly, had Arsenal managed to get past Atletico and be in a final, I think you need to look at the history of the club and see how many European finals. Arsenal have been in ever. Yeah, that that would be in itself, uh, you know, something to cherish. Um, but also Emery having won it three times, uh, and and he when he talked about it um, before the game was very uh, strong on this idea that by winning it you get a Champions League place, um, and sees it quite clearly as as a as a good opportunity to try and get get back into the big league uh, and I think in a way when you look at Arsenal's defence he's got to because <laughs> it's difficult to see the squad in its current format with its current frailties um, easily pushing for that top four again because there's still so much um, that seems institutionally almost and mm. uh, constructionally um, fragile uh, about about the way Ar- Arsenal can kind of game manage if you like because of their de- their defensive uncertainty um it's not impossible obviously they quite rightly should be aiming for top four and 
can consider themselves not a million miles away on a good day from the, the guys who aren't Man City and Liverpool who seem better than most of the rest. But it, it, it is quite maddening and it's quite obvious that the what was going on, the kind of at, the defensive attitude, if you like, uh, the acceptance that um, Arsenal would have this uncertainty at the back that was quite easy to, you know, to, to, to pick at and, and, and knock down. That's deep. That's deep. And a new manager and some new ideas and some new players in that department of the team is not enough to, to fix a problem that had been as deep as as it was evidently. Yeah. It's going to take time and mm. expecting Arsenal to suddenly be, um, you know, a resilient, robust, organized, confident defensive unit. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's hard to predict yeah. how long it's going to take to get back towards those ideas, but yeah. it's obviously much harder than you think trying to get that sorted. Sure. I mean, look, I think we've had evidence of that in all the games that we've seen so far. And I suppose what was perhaps a little bit disappointing about last night was at 4-0, you're playing a team that really hadn't created a great deal and probably shouldn't have scored two goals against us. It was similar, I think, to the one, the goal we conceded late, late. It was a final kick of the game, sort of like the one we conceded against Newcastle, where we, we thought the the game was up. Uh, well, the game was won. Obviously, there was no way they were coming back, but we thought the game was more or less finished and there wasn't perhaps the same amount of concentration and application as there should have been. And he spoke about that after the game, didn't he? He said, we've got to concentrate for the the 90 minutes. I mean, it wasn't just 90 minutes, it was 93rd minute, but I think he's trying to hammer home this. And maybe that goes to what you're saying about these these fundamentals or, or the defensive issues that we have Um lapses in concentration and that kind of stuff that were evident in the past, they're still there, not too far under the surface. Well, I think he's maybe recognising that as well because um, in the way that he speaks publicly, uh, there's been very little evidence of Unai Emery being anything other than pretty positive and upbeat. He's constantly mm. talking about the process and improving and working hard. And his, his language is, you know, is by its very nature, he doesn't want to be emphasizing or even countenancing, I don't think, negatives, not in public anyway. So, but I did notice last night at the press conference, you felt a sort of free sort of, him being sort of slightly irritated as if to say, look, you know, we've just done this against Newcastle. And if you think back to the Chelsea game where mm. they worked so hard to get back into a, uh, a really good position and played for a spell, the best football of the season. Yeah, that one, you know, sucker punch, late goal. And, and then last night, it did take the shine of what had been a very comfortable and, and quite positive uh, evening where... It was for 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 seventy odd minutes. It was exactly more or less what he would have wanted. I mean, it was a little bit dreary to start with, but once Arsenal settled and started to find their rhythm and a bit more precision in their passing and movement, it you could see the players start to enjoy their football. Mm-hmm. And actually, there have been people out there being a bit critical. Also, just won a bunch of games in a row, but not that happy with the level of performances you know i mean yeah people people are asking a lot when there's a huge amount that that, that needed change um and it, and it, it, when this new regime began um 
but you know there have been little you get you see hear people kind of lamenting after a three one win against West Ham or after a win against Cardiff that in the end was you know people felt wasn't that enjoyable because you only just get over the line or, mm. uh, or, or, or you know not playing amazingly at Newcastle but yes yeah, scoring a couple of good goals I mean. People are quite hard uh, to please nowadays. I think. Yes, um, that's fair. Which you know is everyone, everyone's entitled to their own opinion, and everybody is wants to demand greatness. Um, but you, I just thought it was interesting that you could see a little bit of maybe exasperation, although it was quite well disguised. He wasn't openly angry or anything, but yeah. like a bit. You know, like, come on, lads. You know, we're, this was a very good opportunity to keep a clean sheet. Like. We we got it. We got to start nailing this soon. Yeah, what were the what were the positives? The real positives for you from last night's performance? Because there were quite a number. I mean, you you look at the team sheet at the start and you think, why is he starting Aubameyang in a game like this when we've got Everton on Sunday? And then he gets him two goals and he plays him more or less an hour. So it's a confidence boost then for, for Obama Yang. He's got a couple of goals under his belt and we know how much that means to, to strikers. Alex Iwobi has come in the team and done very well. Lucas Torreira uh, gets his first start and does well. Socrates looked decent at the back. Uh, and I know everything that we talk about has to be put in the context of A, the, the time and the fact that it's only his sixth game in charge or whatever it is, and also the caliber of the opposition but if you are looking for positives there were quite a number there yeah and I think that you know the use of Aubameyang was an interesting one and it was it was also instructive to to see when the TV camera was panning over to the bench to see Alex Lacazette kind of slinking deeper and deeper <laughs> he was almost horizontal by the end in his uh, in his seat and you, you know that's an it, it's a fascinating sort of sub plot of of this season and how the team is evolving, which is how to maximise the the qualities of Aubameyang and Lacazette, because mm. it does seem so wasteful to not have them both on the pitch as often as possible. But it's a it's a it's that balancing act that is um, a tricky problem for the manager to solve. Because yeah, I mean, just being brave enough to say, well, let's go, let's go four four two and play you know a pair of strikers who can go and do loads of damage he's worried that the midfield just can't cope with that yeah um and and that's fair but it's it's difficult for Obama Young and Lacazette because I think on one level they're quite tight uh, uh, they seem like they're good friends they get along and they like playing together um but on another hand there is a bit of competition there because there are going to be you know, quite a number of games this season where Emery is going to feel he has to choose one. Mm. And if there is a pecking order, you have to ask yourself, why did he play Aubameyang yesterday? Did he play Aubameyang because he's going to start Lacazette against Everton? Or did he play Aubameyang because he wants to play the guy in form because he's his main man? Yeah. And my suspicion is it might be a bit more of the latter, which is why maybe Lacazette looked a little bit <laughs> bit grumpy because... He, you know, he's he, he's done a, a good job this this season, like I said, and maybe he feels, look, whatever I do and however much the other guys um, a bit off form, they want him to be, you know, firing. And uh, yeah. um, maybe he just fancied helping himself to, you know, what he, what he thought might be a hatful of goals for himself against fairly easy pickings. Yeah. Um, but I'm, I'm intrigued to see how how this plays out. And a, and a great manager 
would find a way to accommodate both players playing to the best of their ability. <laughs> and I, but that said, with the caveat that I really do appreciate that it's not as easy as saying, "Ah, go out and enjoy yourself." Sure. And let's not worry if the well, I think, we, I think we, we've you. been there before, haven't we? And uh, yeah. that's part of the reason why why he's in charge. Another interesting little subplot was the introduction of Mesut Ozil in the second half, and. You know, when we talk about the challenges that Unai Emery has to face, they're many and varied in terms of what he's got to do with his team. You talk about the strikers, he's got a defense to fix, he's got to get a team back into the top four, but he's also got to deal with personalities and man management. And I think we've seen early on that he he's not afraid to to deal with big names and big stars and, and whatever people want to think happened with Mesut Ozil or didn't happen with Mesut Ozil. Something happened, and it looks to me like Emery is the guy who's come out on top of that, as he rightly should. The idea of using Arsene Wenger, for example, using Mesut Ozil in a group stage game in the Europa League, bringing him on as a substitute against somebody like uh, Vorskla is almost unthinkable. And I think there was something quite interesting about the fact that Emery not only named him on the bench, but used him in that second half. Yeah, that's true. But also, uh, Ozil... Ozil's body language is of, of obviously a, a very well uh, a spotlit yes. thing that we all focus on. Um, was not remotely uh, down, I didn't think. No, I, think I didn't he think looked, so. He looked, he looked quite relaxed and like he was happy to get out, come come on and have a runabout, and obviously got got himself a, a, a goal as well. Um, I, I think that the other thing, the other aspect of that though, is. There is a difference, I believe, in approach to the Europa League and uh, Premier League uh, kind of running side by side in this, when you compare Wenger with Emery. Uh, Wenger very clearly from day one of, of, of the Europa League last year made it pretty clear he was going to try and have two separate teams. Um, certainly for the group stages, and did, you know there were wholesale changes, and there were a lot of changes last night. But it was a slightly stronger team than perhaps we might have expected mm. um, in what might be the easiest of the the, the group games at home. And uh, you know he could probably have used a few more youngsters had he wished. And but again, you know, he was happy to give some people some game time, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, but Emery's attitude to the Europa League I think is slightly different to Arsene Wenger's and he seems like a guy who's serious about it from the beginning and he wants to take this competition properly seriously and I think that even through the group um, he will he will play uh, more experienced teams uh, provided people stay fit Um you know, to 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 try and emphasise this idea that we really like this competition and we really want to do well in it. And the best way of doing well in it is by starting strong and staying strong. We're not just going to, you know, relax and be casual and just assume that we'll have enough to yeah. to go through a, a group and then then we'll see where we stand. I think he means business right away. And do you think that's something that the players are are going to respond to? Because what happened last season was we did have these two squads and it felt like there was almost a a Berlin Wall between them in a way. It was insurmountable. It wasn't a case that regardless of how well you played in the Europa League, you were then in contention for the the Premier League or the first team squad. It, It feels a bit more meritocratic 
under Unai Emery. Yeah, I think Emery. so. I think it's more fluid as well. Yeah. I think the, 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 the relationship between the two squads will be much more fluid, um, which I quite like. I mean, on I, I think the clever way maybe of particularly taking a bigger picture view of this group is that there are two absolute what's the right word without swearing, um, uh, a nightmares of, uh, of away trips in terms of the journey, yeah. the travel time, the, you know, even time difference. It's four hours difference when you're, you're going to Baku. Um, the, the return trip to Vorksla, which is, you know, a good three or four hours by road from the nearest airport. It's not a fun trip if you've got a difficult game the following Sunday. Uh, and Baku is even with a direct flight, it's five and a half hours and a four-hour time difference. It's, it's it, they're both tricky. They're not going to Lisbon or Dudelengo in Luxembourg or as AC Milan did the other day, or, or, or a relatively straightforward European trip. Mm. Um, so I think on those two matches in particular, he'll be hoping to do enough in the home games and at home against Sporting Lisbon that he can take maybe some younger players and be not taking the three or four players who might figure in, in the weekend's game and in the European game. Um, you know, Monreal, for example, uh, obviously, yeah, and Socrates, who who played on the weekend, played in Europa and will probably play on the weekend again. Mm. Uh, I, I think he's going to have to try and avoid that for the difficult away trips. So if you're serious about the other matches, your easier ones at home, in theory, and... Uh, and the sporting Lisbon one, which shouldn't be quite so challenging in terms of the overall demands on on, on the on the players travel wise and so on. Um, yeah, that 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 makes sense. Mm. Uh, what have you made of the the start of the season? I think it was quite unfortunate, wasn't it, to 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 get City and Chelsea in those opening two games? And as I keep saying and keep thinking, it's it's really difficult to draw any definitive judgments on what he's doing, how he's doing it, what the team is supposed to be doing. But do you get the sense that the players are buying into his methods, his training? We, we hear about how, how different it is. We're getting more behind-the-scenes uh, footage, actually, from the official site, which, which is quite interesting. They seem to be presenting an image of Unai Emery and the players and the relationship there, which is a, which is a very positive one. The players... You know, publicly are talking very positively about it, but it it is a change. I think it was Hector Bellerin who said it's a lot more intense. There's a lot more focus on the opposition. Um, for players who have been, I won't necessarily say in a comfort zone, but but used to one man and one man only, it, it can be a really positive thing for for them to take a sharp left turn in terms of how they're dealt with by a manager and what a manager expects from them. Yeah, I mean, I think what's interesting is that. We as outsiders are looking for, for for signs. We're looking for clues. We're looking to yeah. to see something that we can um, we can illuminate and say that's different. That's what's been missing. That's what's coming. You know, uh, and I guess what's the most uh, complex part about these opening few weeks is that it's been quite hard to see those signs or those clues. Um, you know, there was that quarter of an hour spell at, at, at Chelsea um, before half time wow. where Arsenal came back to 2-2 and probably should have been about 4 or 5-2 up where it's like wow you know they suddenly just played football that absolutely blitzed Chelsea and you thought well this is 
in, this is interesting. This is what they're capable of. But then there's a whole other stretches of matches where you think, as I think you and um, James uh, have, uh, have discussed on on the pod. Um, you know, how pressy is the press? Like, yeah. hang on a sec, you know, we'd, we've been told a lot of stuff about this this press and uh, it, it's hard to some, sometimes really detect those obvious signs of change. And the most clear sign of change is, is playing out from the back and that's that's something that's been troublesome and given the team some toothing trouble. So um, it, I always felt that it, I wouldn't even think about making trying to try to judge anything for a couple of months, particularly with the opening two games, as you said, which which ended up being like most people would have predicted, which was you know no points, and then you try and re- rebuild from there, which is kind of what's happened. Mm. Um, maybe by Christmas, if we have this conversation, I think you're in a good position. So, okay, so what really has changed about this new approach? Um, it's hard because sometimes you look at teams who do seem to go through these sudden transformations with a new manager and it's very obvious uh, and at other times it's it, you obviously just need more uh, le- uh, lengthy work mm. for all the ideas to, to bed and you're kind of you're undoing habits that are so set you're relearning something it's really yeah and not, really, not... A, a massive thing. I remember once um, talking to someone in uh, that was talking about physiology of, of players and these kind of fine lines and details and tiny things. And it was to do with uh, when Shad Forsyth came over and it was uh, some American guys who worked with the company that he worked with previously. They were explaining about their methodology and talking about how they would video how players run. And if they detected that they were running in a, a slightly uh, inefficient way. So maybe the heel of one side was going down a bit early com- on one side compared to the other, which could just shift the way that the Achilles hit the <laughs> this bone and blah, blah, blah. It was incredibly sophisticated stuff. They would then work with that player and try and teach them again how to run in a different way. Now, if you've been running without ha- in a certain way, since you started running maybe yeah. at the age of 18 months or whatever <laughs> it is and you're now 25 and someone's saying ah no can you not run like that can you run like this it's unlearning something that's so deep in your kind of in your muscle memory sure. and in your system that it's it, it's mind-boggling and in a way some of arsenal's issues are so you know, are so set in the muscle memory and the kind of psychological memory of the team, that trying to unlearn them to do something else. Yeah. Or, you know, you think that you should, okay, I'm being told to do this, I should be able to do it. But our brains and our bodies don't don't necessarily work quite that easily. You can't just reboot, like with a touch of a button on a computer screen. Um, Well, you see with golfers, don't you, when they try and change their swing, you know, and it takes them six months or nine months to to relearn how to hit the ball the way they used to hit the ball, something that And you've got to really want to do it, and you've got to really believe the Mm. person who's telling you that this is what you should be doing instead. Because if you don't, really, Mm. it's never going to happen. So... There's a lot going on in there. 
the sure is. I mean, I was just going to say that, you know, you see other clubs and people have, have, have talked about um, Sarri at Chelsea and the impact he's had in a short period of time. But he's not trying to, and I won't say undo, but he's not trying to get people to relearn 22 years of what Arsene Wenger had taught them and instilled at the club. So maybe that um, makes the case for, you know, more, uh, more frequent changes uh, of management. But look, like you say, I think we, we, we've really got to wait... Um, a couple of months at least before we can start to see exactly what's going on on the pitch. But what we can talk about a bit is what's going on off the pitch. And this week, changes at board level um, with Ivan Gazidis accepting the job to to go to AC Milan. Raul Sanyehi and Vinny, I'm just calling them Raul and Vinny for ease of <laughs> for ease of podcasting. To be honest, we've got Raul Sven and and Vinny. They're the guys now, but they're going to do the job that Ivan Gazidis did. What what do you make of the way that this thing was handled? Because we first started hearing about this in July. Yeah, I mean it's. Um... It's a, a, a first of all. I, I have to say that you know, we, yes, we acknowledge we're now living in a, a time where um, the elite football clubs are around Europe and, and the world are multi-million-dollar investment business corporation, enormous, gigantic beasts, mm. and as such, you know, the people who are involved in the senior administrative positions are important it's, in the end I, I love talking about football and I, I can't get as wound up about sure. a, 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 a man in a suit leaving the club or whatever <laughs> a, a, as I can about a, a player or a manager or a coach or something like that yeah. however that that being said um, I, you know I, I also think in the end you know Ivan Gazidis is to an extent outlined when he left in his statement you know sort of all the changes that um, he's been a big part of and uh, how he's leaving the club in this new kind of structural position and so on uh, in the way that it operates. Yes, you can remember the Ivan Gazidis time for for some of what he's done in the last year or two and certainly that transition away from Wenger towards something new. But on the other hand, I, I think it's also important to remember the times when Arsenal needed some leadership uh, and didn't have it. Mm. And I I think of the really, really worst, um, um, most distressing points of the Fenger era where he looked very isolated. Um, things were going very pear-shaped and there was a lot of unrest. And it, it felt like the club needed somebody in a, a leadership role away from the coaching staff to uh, be vocal, to either come out with some support or with some ideas or with some anything. And the silence anything. then, the way that uh, Ivan Gazidis seemed to hide himself away is something that I'll also remember about his time at the club. And I don't think that's going to be missed. Uh, I, I, You know, I... I that aside, there are other people now to take care of the club. I, I, I don't. Is it a coincidence that his time to go comes as Stan Kroenke begins to take uh, full control of the club? Mm, I, don't I don't know. know. I'm not sure mm. we'll ever find out. Um, but you know, things are changing 
in ways that feel quite unpalatable to uh, long-time supporters of the club who remember feeling a bit more involved or like they have a bit more of a say um, or that they're able to communicate how they feel to the people who are looking after the club, to the custodians. Um, and those days are now gone. Mm. So how is Arsenal going to manage as a business, uh, as an entity, and are, are the people there able to to not just pick up what Gaziz was doing, but maybe do better? Um, yeah. And I'd love to say I knew anything about Vinny, really. <laughs> but uh, I can't um, add too much yet. But obviously, there's some kind of division of, of, of the duties, but that was kind of sort of happening anyway. But Ivan did try and I think felt that he was very capable of engaging on the football side. And the big question now is whether uh, Vinay is able to do that. Um, certainly, I think if he goes to sit at the top tables of European football representing Arsenal um, as a sort of chief executive role, whatever the title might be, is he going to have the the clout to um, have impact uh, with his peers at that, other would, major European clubs? Would that not be the job of Raul Sanyehi, though, as the head of football? Would he not be the guy who's going to represent the club at, at those kind of things? And what uh, Vinay is going to do is the business side of things, the commercial side of things, the money, the all the, the sponsorship deals, the kit deals, the stadium rights, you know, all that side of the club will be his remit. And the football side, we assume that, that Raul Sanyehi will be given that responsibility. I guess so. I mean, it, maybe it would be nice if we could hear from them. Yes. I mean, I, personally, I would love to have the ability to have, you know, anybody um, sit down with them uh, and ask them some questions. Some questions. I think that both men uh, need to somehow outline their vision for the club, how they see football, how they see Arsenal within the wider framework of the football world what the ambitions are, what's achievable. Um, I think it's really important that, that we get to hear that and not in the form of some sort of two-paragraph statement on the official website. Yeah. Yeah. Well, maybe that's it's, it's overdue, isn't it, really? Because what we did have, as you said, during the, the final months of the Wenger era was this silence from board level, and we really had no idea of what uh, what was going on at board level. Um Certainly they didn't tell us that, and Ivan Gazidis didn't tell us that. There was a flurry of Gazidis activity when Unai Emery was, was announced, and obviously he presented him to the club, showed him our very famous tunnel area, um, which was an important part of his, uh, of his process. And then it sort of went quiet again, and, and uh, when the, the AC, Milan, AC Milan links were there, there was silence again from both Gazidis and the board. And I think it probably speaks a little bit to the to the nature of the Arsenal board that they allowed this thing to go on for, for quite some time. But as you say, things are things are changing and things have changed since we spoke last on this podcast. Ali Sharuzmanov has sold his shares to Stan Kroenke. Stan Kroenke and KSE will very soon own 100% of Arsenal. You alluded to it a little bit earlier in terms of having that connection with the people who are supposedly the, the custodians of the club rather than the, the holders of all the shares or the, 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 the chief shareholders or whatever it is. It is a big change, isn't it? And it is going to take a little bit of getting used to uh, 
you know, football is a business now. We all understand that, but there is something a little bit, um, you know, if you're of, of a certain age, it is quite difficult to see the way that it's gone. Particularly, I remember when we went to the, was it the 2005 FA Cup final and the Glaciers had just taken over at, oh, yeah. at Manchester United and Arsenal fans were there and, you know, having a great laugh, obviously from winning the game, but throwing dollar bills around uh, at Manchester United fans because it's like, ha-ha, you're owned by Americans now and here we are and we're also owned by Americans. Uh, and that's not to be um, in any way derogatory of no 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 i don't mean it's not it's not to do with it's not to do with the fact that they are americans it's to do with the the, the level of 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 involvement yeah the level of of um ambition and vision and dynamism uh the level where you care in your core of your being Mm. about how this football club is doing and you do everything you can to help them be the best that they can be and you know, you, you can look around at the at the owners and the billionaire, trillionaire, gazillionaire owners across a whole bunch of clubs from various different parts of the world. And there are those who are, and it's not just about putting money in, it's, it's about an attitude as well. Um, there are those who come in and who really desperately want a success. And by that, that means a footballing success, not not a financial success, although often the two are, are connected. Mm. Um, and there are those who are still regarding uh, their involvement in a, in a major club as a, as a financial vehicle, as part of their investment portfolio. And that's that. And I think most Arsenal supporters know and are understandably fearful about where they are. Yeah. in that regard uh, and it's 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 difficult to not be concerned it, and that's where again if you've got you know and and, and what although we talked about the moments where Ivan was nearly as silent as Stan in moments of need um he was still some form of a spokesman he did still attend the these fan meetings and try to engage with people he did still stand up there um, and lead the annual general meetings and represent the voice of of, of Arsenal's board to an extent. Uh, whatever you thought of what he was saying and how he was delivering his message, if it was a bit too slick or um, uh, or what have you, he did it. Mm. And who where is is Raúl going to be that mouthpiece? Is Vinay or neither of them? Mm. Will we just get nothing? Um, that's something that is will be very disappointing if that's the case but i I hope that someone at the club will recognize the importance of there being some public uh expressions some public accountability coming from that side of the club the non non non-football side of the club yeah i mean the the onus you would have to think is on kse to to be that voice because they've put together this massive offer. They talked in their offer document about how they want Arsenal to challenge consistently for the Premier League and the Champions League. Nobody can argue with those ambitions. Those are ambitions that we all share, obviously. But 
perhaps a bit like with uh, Unai Emery, is there a need to look? I'm as cynical as the next person about their their uh, how far they're going to go to make that happen in terms of their financial investment, because you know it can boil down to being smarter, having good coach, having good players, improving what we have. But also, there's a financial element. It's impossible to escape that financial element when it comes to building a football team and certainly correcting uh, or putting right a football team that was uh, very high level which isn't as high level as it should be anymore you've got to get you've got to get some money in the bank or get some money into the into the transfer kitty to to improve things so i'm a little bit cynical um about how far they're going to go in that regard but given that they have just taken 100% control is it is there a need to just sort of okay wait and see and let's see let's see if we hear from them or let's see what they put in place well look, nobody can make anybody talk um, Certainly not Stan. <laughs> but like I said, given that there is this change, and I think you don't want to have a total vacuum where there's no communication um, coming from that side of the club. Uh, yeah, let's just let's just see. I, I, as I said at the be- beginning of what we were just talking about in this part of the conversation, uh, I think it would be a really good thing for Arsenal to make. Raul and Vinay available at some point uh, in an not in a totally kind of club controlled environment to just take a few questions about where they're at and what they think and what's, how they want to, how they job? want to run the club because it, yeah. they're the guys it's not Stan who's going to be doing the running he might he might be the one who can outline the ambitions in his takeover document but in the end he's not going to be doing the day to day decision making and uh, dealing with the you know the critical issues that are going to affect essentially how the team is able is able to perform because of the environment that they put in place so yeah let's find out what the what they think yeah. what they want what they what they feel is is attainable in a realistic way. Yeah, come on, Arsenal, sit down with a <laughs> sit down with a good journalist and talk about what you you're going to do. I, I I think that's perfectly reasonable. Raúl or Vinay or Josh, whoever it might be, I think we yeah. know the the right person uh, to talk to. Amy, we better leave it there. It's a pleasure as always. <laughs> <laughs> I think I'm a bit too far down the list. <laughs> um, in fairness, the club invited me. Uh, to have a really, really good chat with Perma Saka uh, this week, which oh, will cool. be in Sunday's Observer, with a bit of luck. Um, and that was a really brilliant example of how when you get the chance to let someone explain themselves and talk about what they believe, you can really learn and feel the vibes of what's going on. Um, Pear, obviously, has just started his new role as head of the academy which I think is a bit of a voyage of discovery for him. And uh, it was really a combination of inspiring and instructive to hear him outline a bit about the issues he thinks that young players face. And it's a bigger picture thing than it's not particularly specific to 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 Arsenal mm. um, and the, the whole conversation really stemmed from the fact that he went out with the Arsenal Foundation to uh, the Sartari refugee camp to go and see um, some of the work that Arsenal do with Save the Children in building pitches for children in, in very dire circumstances uh, to find a, a place of haven of a place to express themselves a place to actually have some fun and in Murtisaka's words just 
field joy. Uh, and the work they do out there is amazing. And it's not just, oh, they go out and, you know, they get a, an, an hour of escapism. It, they do a lot of work to train the coaches who are out there mm. um, to to detect signs of stress and problems in these in these youngsters and get them the support that they might need if they're facing particular difficulties. And it, what was amazing was to hear Pear bring together what he felt seeing that and kind of feel this paradox that there's kids out there who have nothing who's feeling for playing football on their ambitions, even in circumstances that seem really unconducive to making a career in football, for example, is really pure. And the contrast between that and uh, our academy system now where you have kids that have luxuries and money and so on at a very young age, and it doesn't, it takes away that joy. It does the opposite of bring them joy in their football and all the pressures and, and um, complexities that, that these kids sometimes face. Uh is a, is something where Mertesacker was very keen to try and find a way as best he can, and you know you're in an environment where this is difficult, but to stop kids from losing their personality. You know, mm. he want which I think is is too easily done when they've got agents and they've got money and they've got people putting them under pressure or they feel even internal pressure that I, I've got to be the one that makes it. I can't let my parents down. These are big things going on in a in a developing young mind, um, and and his approach to how he thinks he might try and minimise the those those difficulties for a kid, so that they can maximise their potential and still maintain that drive and all the natural instincts that make you good in the first place mm. was really interesting. So, I think there is an example of a guy who's an it's a new appointment. Yeah, we don't know how he's going to get on. Um, he's a young guy uh, in in that kind of a role, but he's he's inspired by it. And having instead of just thinking, oh, I wonder how he's going to get on. I wonder what he really thinks about it. Actually, being able to sit and hear someone express their ideas and see the passion in their face when they're talking about it it gives you a feeling of the work that's going on in a, in a, a part of the club and what they want to try and achieve. Amazing so, what you can learn by talking to people. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. Well, exactly. look, we look forward to that. That's going to be in the Observer on Sunday. Yeah, that's right. Brilliant. Well, everybody get out Thanks and buy a copy. for that. Yeah. He's great. He's a cool guy. He's a cool guy. He really He's is. He's different, all right. Yeah. He really is. Yeah. Well, look, uh, Amy, we will uh, we'll leave it there. We'll catch up again with you uh, a bit later in the season. Cheers, Andrew. Good luck with everything. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. 
Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Thanks as ever to Amy Lawrence. You can find her on Twitter at AmyLawrence71. And that Per Mertesacker piece, which will be uh, in The Observer on Sunday, sounds like an absolute must read. So we look forward to that over a cup of coffee on Sunday morning before we get ready to play Everton. The second of four in a row at home uh, in all competitions, two in the Premier League, one last night in the Europa League. There's a Carabao Cup game on Wednesday against uh, uh, Brentford. That's right, it's Brentford, but Everton on Sunday, and it's a challenge. It's going to be a challenge. Obviously, you and I, Emery, rotated a squad a little bit last night. Another slight disappointment for me last night was the fact that Lucas Torreira appeared to pick up a bit of a, an ankle injury. I think he, he landed awkwardly, uh, having challenged for a header and, and twisted his ankle a little bit. So I do wonder if that might keep him out. I was really impressed with him in the opening half an hour. He faded a bit after the injury, uh, although he did have a, a decent chance from a free kick. Uh, but we will have to wait and see how much rotation Emery puts in place for this game on Sunday against uh, against Marco Silva's Everton, against Theo Walcott's Everton. Theo Walcott said this week that he fell out of love a little bit with football when he was at Arsenal the last... 12 or 18 months he found it very tough being on the bench a lot he couldn't play himself into the uh, the first team on a regular basis and that that affected him he's finding it much better now at Everton first under Sam Allardyce and now Marco Silva he has been back though I think he he played at the Emirates for Everton a couple of weeks after going maybe the week out, I can't remember, but we won 5-1, so something similar to that on Sunday would be good again. As we've just spoken about, though, it's very, very difficult to predict what Unai Emery is going to do, how exactly he's going to do it. Our sample size, as we keep saying, is very small, but it's a home game, and it's a game that you would expect us to win. We've got a good record against Everton. We've got a little bit of momentum now, having won four in a row, making it five in a row would just be another little step in the right direction. So, look, we'll keep fingers crossed for that. James and I will be here on Monday with an Arscast Extra, but of course we will be recording that. Not of course. I mean, it's of course to me because I know this already, but James and I will be recording on Sunday evening because he's got he's dressing up in costumes all week long, you see, so we can't do it on Monday morning. So we'll do it on Sunday evening, but we will make the podcast available first thing Monday morning, so it'll be there for your commute. Uh, if you get up Monday morning, you will have a fresh, brand-new Arsecast Extra waiting for you, hopefully one in which we're discussing an Arsenal win and in which we're discussing three lovely points. That would be great. Uh, In the meantime, have yourselves a great weekend. Thank you as ever for listening. I'm going to leave it here because it's almost midday right now and people, they want a podcast. They want a podcast and they've got a podcast now. So enjoy. Thanks for listening. Catch you on the next one. Cheers. Bye-bye.
Hello, my name is... And I am the manager of... And I for one hope that we do draw Arsenal in the Europa League so I can ram these disrespectful comments about the Europa League down the throat of this ridiculous podcast guy who thinks he knows so much but he knows nothing. Has he ever even been to a... Game? Or does he know anything about the... Fans? And what does he know about the football culture in our great nation of... (laughs) I can tell you, stupid podcast bloke, as sure as my name is... We will make you regret your words and insolence that come out of your mouth, but actually sound like they come out of your bottom. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact... You can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. <laughs> 